Amen, amen. Well, good morning and welcome. You can go ahead and take your seats. And let me invite you to start making your way to the book of 2 Corinthians, which is where we're at this morning. We'll be starting in verse 12 and then making our way a little bit into chapter 2, so you can start making your way to uh, 2 Corinthians 1. As you're doing that, uh, I want to begin by having us run back a number of years ago. Uh, when I was pastoring uh, in Flagstaff, uh, subsequently that is where I had grown up, and on one particular morning, there was a lady who was in the lobby uh, who was new to the church. And so I walked over and introduced myself to this lady and said, hi, my name's Mike. Who are you? She introduced herself, uh, gave me her name back, and she said, I know who you are. And I said, oh, you do? And she said, yes, you used to bully my son in high school. <laughs> now, hold on. Hold it. Y'all just believed that, didn't you? So kind of a shocking, stunning intro, right? And so like time just slowed down because I'm thinking about all the things I did in high school. And there were a lot of dumb, sinful things. But you know what I was confident of is that I had bullied nobody. And so I looked back at her and I said, ma'am, I did a lot of dumb things. I did a lot of sinful things, but I can confidently tell you I did not bully your son uh, because I didn't bully anyone. And then I just waited for the conversation to implode and crater, right? Because no one opens like that to just go, yeah, just kidding, except this woman, right? Who, I kid you not, who, I kid you not, she goes, oh, I know. I was just curious as to whether or not you had a clear conscience, which I thought was a really odd way to introduce yourself to someone at a church. But, but it, it begs, right, for all of us to ask this question, do I have a clear conscience? Do I live with a clear conscience? And maybe you're like, oh, I don't know. Do you want to live with a clear conscience? Because the passage that we come to this morning is going to press us in a way that when we live a life surrendered to Jesus, it is going to allow and enable you and I to live with a clear conscience conscience. In fact, here's where God's Word is going to lead us, this idea right here, that our willingness to yield to God's plan enables integrity and a clear conscience for us. Let me say that again. Our willingness to yield to God's plan enables integrity and a clear conscience for us. So with that, let me have you look at your Bibles. Second uh, uh, Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 12 and following, says this. I'm going to read the passage, but encourage you to follow along. This is the Word of the Lord, loved ones. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand and hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this. I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. 
For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Loved ones, this is the word of the Lord, and it will stand for all of time. Amen? Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Pray with me. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you. God, for your word. God, we're praying in these next few moments that your word would do your work to accomplish your purposes in your people. Father, would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us ears to hear? God, would you give us hearts that know and understand the fullness and the totality of your truth? God, would you help us to be submitted to all that your word has for us here this morning? God, as always, we want to pray for another church in the area. God, this morning, praying for Cedar Springs Church and for Pastor Grant Blankenship, we pray uh, that in that body of believers that you'd be moving and working uh, in the same way that we desire that you would move and work in and amongst us now. Uh, So, Father, would you have your way, accomplish your good purposes. We pray this in your name and all God's people said, amen. All right, title of the message this morning is Living with a Clear Conscience. Living with a clear conscience. And again, this idea that our willingness to yield to God's plan enables integrity and a clear conscience. And so as we look at this passage, uh, really two distinct parts uh, to the text and how we'll spend our time this morning. The first part uh, is that we see this testimony of a clear conscience in verses 12 through 14. And then we see an example of a clear conscience uh, starting in verse 15 of chapter 1, taking us all the way down uh, to 2 Corinthians 2 verse 4. Uh, But let's begin with this idea right here, our testimony of a clear conscience in verses 12 through 14, and a couple of items that we've got to deal with up front, um, and then we'll get into the meat of the text. But Paul begins uh, with this line at the beginning of verse 12 that, that maybe causes us to stiffen or bristle a little bit, because he says, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience. And you see that, and, and first of all, probably what you think of is, wait, 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 why is he boasting in anything, much less in his conscience, right? So we see that word boast, and, and, and as Christians, we're like, well, you know, as believers, we're not supposed to boast. Like that, that, that's not to be true of us. We're not uh, to do that. And so why is he using this language? Well, it's probably worth noting that the majority of times when, when the Apostle Paul uses the word boast, he actually uses it, uh, it's positive in nature. And the reason is because when Paul uses this term boast, he's often talking, uh, he's boasting in what the Lord will do to or in or through uh, or for or by us, which by the way is exactly what he's talking about here in verse 12. Because you see, if you go towards the end of verse 12, you're going to notice all that Paul is getting at is captured under this phrase when he says, by the grace of God. He's saying God is the source Right? God is the one that's doing this, and so ultimately his boast is in the Lord. That, that, that's who he's boasting in. 
And so he says, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience. Right? Conscience. And our conscience is what approves or disapproves of certain actions or certain behaviors. Right? But a clear conscience is a conscience that, that, that does not need to alarm us of inconsistencies in our life that are at odds with what we find in God's Word. In fact, a clear conscience is a remarkable gift. It's a, a remarkable grace when we conduct ourselves in the way that God calls us to. In fact, here, let me try to... Well, have you ever been guilty of something? Right, you laugh. Wait, we all have. right? If nothing else, each and every one of us should be like, yeah, I'm guilty of sin. I've defied God. Right? We've all been guilty of a number of things. But when you're guilty, you can feel it. Right? It gnaws at the inside of you. So here, let me try to illustrate this in a, maybe a somewhat comical way, although the, the, the principle isn't comical. Uh, but one of the things you should probably know about your pastors is um, we're fond of playing pranks on each other. Uh, so that's very much something that goes on uh, in the workplace. And probably the most common prank is uh, we will take books that we'll just call them theologically questionable books, okay? And we will hide them on each other's shelves to see how long it takes the other person to find them. Now, a more base form of this is occasionally we'll put, like, sports paraphernalia in each other's office, usually of just terrible, horrible teams, like cowboy stuff will show up uh, in each other's office. It's August. It's time to start making fun of the cowboys, okay? Right? But, 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 but most of the time, we're sticking these books in each other's shelves. And here's where the distinction comes. And here's what I want you to get. See, if I go to Pastor Brian, and I'm like, did you do this? The moment that deflection begins to happen, what do I know? Absolutely he did it. He just won't own it. But if Pastor Brian says, I did not put that book in your office, he's got a clear conscience. I didn't do it. He can, he can state that objectively. And so as you think about that in a more serious sense, right? when we conduct ourselves rightly, when we live the way that God calls us to live, you have nothing to hide. You're above reproach. Right? But if you have a guilty conscience, you're stripped of the confidence that God intends us to live in. And that's what Paul's getting at here in verses 12 through 14. Here, here's really his flow of thought. He says, our boast is in our conscience because we live a particular way, but all of this is by the grace of God. And then that feeds into verse 13 and 14. Right? But God is the one who's enabling all of this. So the reason that any of us can live with a clear conscience is not because we're awesome. It's because the grace of God is at work in our lives. And so with that, let's get into the, the terrain here of, this, of these verses uh, around this idea of a testimony of a clear conscience. Because Paul's laying out for us, hey, you want a clear conscience? Here's, here's how you have a clear conscience. This is what it looks like. Here's how you live your life if you're going to have a clear conscience. Three things in these three verses I want you to note. Here's the first. Look at verse 12. That we behave in a godly manner. He says, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world. And then he's going to list some specific ways that they have behaved in the world. Right, the testimony of a clear conscience is seen in our godly living. And when he's talking about behavior here, he's not saying that we never fail. Right, that, this notion of sinless perfection, that's not attainable this side of eternity. He's talking about the broad, general classification of, of who you are as a person. Right, this is who you are more often than not. 
right? This is how those who are close to you would characterize or describe you. And he gives three attributes here uh, around this idea of behavior. The first is, he says, we behaved in the world with simplicity. Now, now, when we see the word simple, we, we tend to think of basic. Some of your Bibles might have a little footnote, and they'll tell you that some manuscripts, you're going to find a different word there, and the word is holy or holiness. And so I wrote down, we behave with holiness, not so much because uh, simplicity is not the case, but, but some of our modern vernacular of how we think of the word uh, simple uh, isn't fully capturing all that Paul intends uh, in this. He's talking about holiness, right, that there's a righteous holy living. And if you want to understand the connection between simple and holy, it's the idea that I've removed all the clutter of sin from my life. And so what is left is this holiness or this righteousness. And yet notice how he qualifies it, that we behaved what? In the world. It's not that we're separated from the world. It's not that we're isolated from the world, but in the confines of the world that we live in. That we're living in holiness. Like that, that actually makes it harder, does it not? Because right? it, it's, at some level, it's, it's easy to pursue holiness if you're just with a bunch of Christians. But you get around a number of non-believers, all of a sudden, th- this becomes a little more difficult. And yet, that's exactly what Paul's speaking into. In fact, it's, it's worth asking. When you, when you think of your own life, would your coworkers describe you as someone who desires and pursues holiness? Would your neighbors describe you as someone who's set apart for the Lord? Are we pursuing holiness? You want another biblical example of what this looks like? Ephesians 5 would be a really helpful place to go, right? Where Paul talks about there's no crude or coarse jesting. We're not, we're, there's no filthiness. Um, we're, we're not partaking in the, the unfruitful deeds of darkness, Right? But instead, we're exposing them. And, and there he summarizes that as we're walking in the light. Is that us? We're going to have a clear conscience. We're going to be people with a clear conscience. We've got to behave with holiness and even doing so within the world. Secondly, he says, not only do we behave with simplicity, but with godly sincerity. We behave with godly sincerity. As you think about this, think of innocence. And when I say innocence, not naivety, but purity or integrity. An integrity is doing what's right, even if it's unpopular, unpleasant, or undesired. Right? But if we want to have a clear conscience, we, we have to operate with, with this godly sincerity. Are you committed to doing what's right? Are you willing to stand for, for what's true, even if it comes with risks or consequences for you? In fact, in a moment, Paul's going to explain this entire scenario um, that, that, that cost him and his reputation amongst the Corinthians. And yet for all of us, it, it's worth considering, am I living with godly sincerity and am I, am I willing to pay the price if necessary? And then thirdly, he tells us a third qualifier, although he gives it to an, in, in a negative. He says, not by earthly wisdom, that we do not behave with worldly Wisdom. Now, now, contextually, this has to do with how Paul is, is making decisions in his life. We'll, we'll unpack that here in a moment um, when, when we get into the next section. But, but for, for right now, I want us to just think for a moment about how is it that I make life decisions? And, and does my decision-making look like uh, worldly wisdom 
in how we're pursuing a decision-making, or, or, or is it distinct from that? And so I think it's worth asking, how does the world make decisions? Right, well, the world makes decisions based on what's, what's best for me, what's expedient for me, on what's my desire, what's my preference, what's going to make me liked by those around me. That's what rules worldly wisdom. But behaving in, in a godly manner means that I'm going to make life decisions based on what's best for the gospel. I'm going to make decisions based on what brings glory and honor to God in whatever it is that's in front of me. What promotes God's worship and his exaltation? And so, so you start thinking about that. Some of our decisions might be costly. They might be demanding. They might be difficult because it's no longer what I want or what I prefer, but it's what's best for the gospel. It, it, it's what glorifies Christ. And so ask yourself, as you consider decisions in your life, am I even asking those questions? Are those questions that you're thinking about? So to, to you younger people, and, and if you're not a younger person, don't worry, I'll get to you here in a moment, okay? But for you younger people, as you think about dating, as you think about marriage, you think about maybe having kids, you think about your career, what are the questions that dominate your decision-making? Is it personal preference? Is it what I want? Is it what I desire? Is it going to be what, what makes me popular? Or are you submitting all of those things under the influence of what's best for the gospel? What glorifies Christ? What promotes and elevates God above everyone and everything else? Maybe if you're middle-aged like myself, right, parenting is probably a big thing. Maybe career advancement is something in front of you. Maybe where do we live? Maybe you're dealing with elderly parents, Gotta ask yourself, am I a slave to the world's system? Or am I framing all of this through the grid of God's glory and what's best for the gospel? And maybe you're on the tail end of life. So you're thinking about retirement. You're, you're, you're thinking about your final years. And is it about what you want? About, I've put in my time, now I'm gonna do my thing? Or are you gonna use that particular season of your life for the promotion and the praise of Jesus. Oh, that we'd be people who behave in a godly manner, right? that we behave with holiness, we, we behave with godly sincerity, that we do not behave, we do not operate under this worldly wisdom. So Paul moves from that to this second item, starting in verse 13 or in verse 13, that part of this testimony of a clear conscience is we tell the truth. So look at what he says in verse 13. We're not writing anything, uh, we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you'll fully understand. It's like, listen, man, we're just trying to cut it straight. We're, we're, we're trying to be clear, we're trying to be direct, that there's no confusion, nothing's obscure, there's no misdirection, none of that. We want to tell the truth as plainly and as clearly as possible. Now, at one level, this would be really easy to be like, okay, tell the truth, moving on. But, but in another sense, just in thinking about this this week, we all understand, yeah, of course, we're supposed to tell the truth. But I think there's some areas, particularly in the Christian life, where we would do well to be exhorted to make sure that we're telling the whole truth. That we would tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So, so 
here's a few crucial areas we want to make sure that we are striving to tell the whole truth in. Let me give you three. Here's the first, the complete gospel. The complete gospel. Here's what I mean by that. Any sharing of the gospel that fails to include the reality of our sin and the reality of God's judgment is not the biblical gospel. Did you hear that? We're not sharing the gospel. We don't help people when we try to soft pedal the reality of what God has done on our behalf. When we avoid sin, when we avoid judgment, the good news of Jesus actually gets flattened and diminished. And so God help us, right? God help us. We tell the whole truth about the complete gospel. Secondly, that we tell the whole truth about our sin, both the sin in our life as well as sin in the lives of those around us. Because, loved ones, there's no place, there is no place for in the life of a believer where there is a coddling or accommodating um, or, or tolerating or placating sin in any capacity. Think of it like this. Imagine you have two countries that are about to go to war. One country is bent on destroying their enemy. The other country is bent on ensuring that their enemy feels tolerated and cared for and loved. How do you think that's going to play out? Not well, right? One country is about to get smoked by the other country. See, sin is the same way. John Owen, the, the Puritan, he, he said it so well when he said, be killing sin or it'll be killing you. It's not neutral. You don't tread water with sin. Right? So we, we got to be honest about our sin. Otherwise, it's going to consume us. And then thirdly, related to this, although distinct enough that it it warrants a mention, is transparency in our lives. See, inherent in having a clear conscience is the reality that you have confessed your sins to Christ, that you have been forgiven and atoned for your sins, and that you now stand as one who is right before God. And so what that should mean and what that should translate into is an openness, an honestness, and a transparency that we can have before one another. Right? There doesn't have to be some front or some facade. I don't have to be fake in any capacity about the fact that I'm not perfect. Because the reality is I've been accepted in Jesus. Right? I, I'm covered by his blood. So I can be fully transparent about who I am and who I'm not. And at a basic level, we all love the sound of that. We all love the sound of that. Yet I think for a lot of us, we struggle to live in that. And so we have to say, why? Why is it that we can intellectually grasp this, and, and yet, yet we fail to believe it in our heart? Now, I think there's probably a number of reasons for this. Let me just suggest that one possible reason for this is I think for too many of us, we place more emphasis and more attention on our sin than we do on the Savior who cleanses us from our sin. So we actually end up identifying with our sin instead of identifying with our Savior, which, by the way, is totally backwards from what God intends for us. And so, loved ones, quit deifying your sin and start deifying your Savior. That is going to allow you to be fully transparent in your life because, you know, God has cleansed you from all of your sin and your unrighteousness. But a clear conscience, a clear conscience is going to tell the truth. Like a clear conscience, conscience frees us to tell the truth. Which leads to this third item that we see in verse 14, that we regard others. 
that we regard others. Now, you could argue this is the result of a clear conscience, right? Not, not, but, but this idea of regard for others. So he says, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Now, what's, what's interesting is, is Paul's not making any boast in himself, which he, he would have had every right to do, but he's not doing that. He's actually talking about them. His focus is on him, not on himself. See, a clear conscience frees us from this pursuit of self-preservation and self-consumption, which then allows us to devote more of our time and energy and attention to caring for and looking out for others. This is what the gospel at work in the people of God does. It frees us to have regard for others. Like the evidence, right, the evidence of God's presence in someone's life is their transformation. That the people of God should be looking more and more like the person of God. John Newton, probably most of us know that name, John Newton, the famous author of um, uh, Amazing Grace, uh, one of the most well-known songs in all of human history. Uh, former slaver, definitely had a checkered past. Here's what he has to say about this item. He says, I'm not what I ought to be, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I wish to be. I'm not what I hope to be. Yet though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was which was a slave to sin and to Satan. That's the testimony of a clear conscience. It's God's transforming work within us, right? We look different. That's what Paul's saying here in verses 12 to 14, which leads here to this second element that we find in the remainder of our text this morning, which is an example of a clear conscience, right? So the rest of this passage, it all centers around this conflict between Paul and the Corinthians. And you can go back to 1 Corinthians 16, where Paul had told the Corinthians, I'm going to come to you again. And yet, what we come to realize here in 2 Corinthians is he didn't come. Now, the original readers already knew that he didn't come, but we're, we're kind of figuring it out while also seeing Paul's response to the particular situation. And so he's going to explain why he didn't come, as well as giving us, um, the the not original audience, um, insight into what happened, and then giving us input on how it is that we should think about this. And so as you look at this second section, I want to just highlight a couple things here broadly uh, before we get into it. First of all, look at verse 15. He says, because I was sure of this, right? It's part of his conscience, right? I I was convinced. I was sure of this. Jump down to chapter 2, verse 1, I, for I made up my mind, right? Again, I'm, I'm, I'm resolutely convinced that speaking to his conscience. Go down to verse 3, chapter 2, verse 3, for I felt sure of all of you, right? All of these are helping us to see Paul's conscience, his conviction in this. He was sure that he, he wanted, he desired um, to see the people. But Paul, like us, he's a servant of Jesus. So he's subjected to the Lord's desire, to the Lord's will, which at times is going to be at odds with our own personal desire or will, which is exactly what we see starting in verse 15. Because notice, first thing we see here is that we're yielded to gospel priority above personal preference. We're yielded to gospel priority above personal preference, right? So, So let me just kind of explain what Paul's trying to get at here, and then we'll come back and make application in our life. Okay, so his desire was to come to Corinth. Look at verse 15. 
I wanted to come to you. Verse 16, I wanted to come and visit you. Right? So his desire was to come. Now, starting in verse 17, Paul begins to explain why he didn't come. But let me just finish uh, explaining what happened. Jump down to verse 23. Paul says, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Chapter 2, verse 1. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who's there to make me glad but the one whom I've pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who, who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So he's saying, listen, here's what happened. I wanted to come, right? I had made up my mind to come, and yet God, God said, no, you're not going. So I instead wrote this letter, this letter that we don't have, right, that he describes in chapter 2, verse 4, with this affliction and anguish of heart and many tears, but he wrote the letter instead. Yeah, here's the point that he's trying to make. All our plans, listen, loved ones, all our plans are to be submitted to gospel priority, and that God has the freedom and God has the latitude to change our plans according to his purposes. Did you hear that? All of our plans are submitted to the Lord. They're all his to do whatever he wants with. In fact, Paul explains this very thing as he's trying to help the Corinthians understand why it is that he didn't come. Look at verse 17. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? He's like, I, I wasn't vacillating. I wasn't going back and forth. I wasn't hedging my options, looking for what would be the best possible plan for me. Which, by the way, verse, verse 17 is actually a really helpful word for, for each and every one of us in, in a day and age where we're so tentative and so noncommittal on so many different things. That's just become the, the, the norm of operation for so many of us. We don't make definitive plans because we want to leave our options open in case something better comes along. Love them. Be a man or a woman of your word. Make commitments. Stick to them. Right? That, that, that's what Paul's saying. He's like, that, that was my plan. And the only way that we're pulling out of that is if God clearly redirects. Right? But Paul, Paul's saying, if you want a clear conscience, you can't hedge your options. And he's trying to explain to the Corinthians, you think I'm flaky. I'm just telling you that I'm yielded to the Lord and his plan. Because starting in verse 18, he pivots to Jesus. He says, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. He's like, we didn't say yes and no. We said yes. Verse 19, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. In Jesus, it's, it's always Yes. Don't, don't misinterpret that. that. That's not a permissive, tolerant, you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, because everything in Jesus is always yes. As long as I ask the question in the right way, I can do whatever I No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying Jesus is entirely dependable. Jesus is entirely trustworthy. Jesus is sure. Jesus is solid. Jesus is unchanging. That's why it's always yes in him. In fact, he doubles down on this in verse 20. Look at what he says. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. 
He's saying Jesus is the culmination of God's commitment. That all of the promises, I think about all, I mean, we, earlier this year, right, in the book of Genesis, you think about all the promises that came to Abraham. All of those promises are going to find their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. Right? They're going to come to completion in Christ because Jesus is totally dependable, which means we can have great confidence in the promises of God because Jesus is never going to fail. Paul's saying God, God's yes to us is in Jesus, and our yes to God comes through Jesus. Now, I want you to consider for a moment the dependability of Jesus. Always dependable, always reliable, and yet even Jesus was yielded to the Father's plan. Do you remember Jesus when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane? Right before he goes to the cross for our rebellion, remember what he said? Father, if possible, what? Yeah, would you remove this cup? Would you let this pass? And then what did he say next? Right, not my will be done, but your will be done. See, even Jesus is yielded to the Father's plan. And so, so when it comes to our plans, when it comes to our desires, we have to yield our personal preference to gospel purposes. That's what Paul's getting at here. And yet, it's not only that we're yielded to gospel purposes. But he's saying, I wanted to come. God had something different in mind. Because here's, here's the relational or personal rub that now exists for Paul. It's not only that he yields his personal preferences, right, to, to, to the Lord. Don't miss this. It's that he also isn't going to be concerned. He's not going to be overly concerned with what others think about him. He's not going to be unduly influenced by how the Corinthians view him based on this shift in plans. You hear that? He's not being unduly influenced based on the opinions or the perspectives of those around him. That's the backdrop for what's going on. Paul made a decision that was not popular with the Corinthians, but he did it because he's ultimately submitted to the Lord. And he's not controlled by their approval, he's controlled by Christ, which is probably a reminder that all of us need. That, loved ones, you and I cannot be unduly influenced by the thoughts or the perceptions or the opinions of the people around us at the expense of gospel purposes. Let me say that again, that you and I cannot be unduly influenced by the thoughts, by the perceptions, or by the opinions of those around us. Right? We cannot be uh, of those around us at the expense of gospel purposes. And so as you think about that, it's just worth asking some honest questions. Ask yourself this. Is there any area of my life where I'm preoccupied with others' perception above gospel purpose? Is there any area in my life where I'm overly influenced by others' view of me instead of God's honor and glory? Is there any area where I'm withholding or even overcompensating to protect my reputation at the expense of gospel fidelity? Because if so, God's word's coming at you right now. I'll use something that a number of you have heard me say at different points, uh, whether individually or from the pulpit, but I'm fond of saying that one of my jobs as your pastor is to love you enough that I don't care if you like me. 
Now, that's kind of a harsh way of saying it. So maybe, maybe a softer way of saying that is to love you enough to where I'm not unduly influenced by your approval of me. But I just kind of like the straight and to the point, okay? My job is to love you enough that I don't care if you like me. That's what Paul's talking about right here. Right? It, it, it's this thing right here. And in life, rarely, if ever, are you going to make decisions that everyone's going to like and approve. So here, here's a little nugget for you. Um, because that's true, you might as well preserve your integrity when some type of displeasure over a decision is inevitable. You might as well do what God is calling you to do. We're yielded to gospel priority above personal preference. And you see that. You might be like, man, that, that, that's hard. I, how do I do that? Well, verse 21 and verse 22 helps us to properly frame this. Because what we see, right, we can be yielded to gospel priority when we know that we're established in Christ, which is exactly what we see in 21 and 22. In fact, everything in this text rises and falls on what we see in 21 and 22. Here's what he says. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has put a seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So, so here again, we see this in Christ motif that shows up once again, the, this living in Jesus. And related to this, Paul gives us three very theologically rich statements that we would do well to make sure that we fully understand all that is entailed by being established in Christ. Uh, but before I get to the statements, let me just make a broad observation. I want you to notice God's the one doing all of this. Do you see that? God is the active agent who establishes us. God is the active agent who anoints us, who seals us, who gives us his spirit. We are the recipient of that. God's the one who's doing the work here. We know we're established in Christ. Three things that Paul gives us here. First of all, he says he's anointed us at the end of verse 21. We're anointed. What does that mean? Well, if you were to go back to the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 61, there is a prophecy about this anointed promised one who was going to come, who was going to bring liberty to the captives and who was going to put an end um, uh, to, to, to all shackles and proclaim liberty and bind up the brokenhearted and comfort the mourners and, and, and all these different things. It's pointing us to Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And yet, Paul's saying that we're anointed. Well, if you look at other passages in the New Testament, 1 John 2, for example, it actually tells us that we're anointed by God's Spirit. And so it would seem to say that this anointing that comes from God is given to the church to carry out the mission of Jesus. Loved ones, that you and I are to continue what Christ was doing. That's what he's calling us to. That's part of what it is to be established in Christ, that we continue the mission that Jesus started. Now, if we have any hope of doing this, the only way we're going to do this is if we are, in fact, established in Christ. But God has anointed his people for his task. Secondly, he says that we're sealed. He's put a seal on us. Now, now a seal in that day denoted ownership. It's this sense of, of, of possession or belonging, that we belong to God. 1 Corinthians 6 talks about how we were bought by God. Right, it's through the blood of Jesus that we are purchased. Right, right, Christ uh, possesses us because of his purchase of us. That is the gospel that we love and believe. Right, that we've been purchased through the blood of Christ. And then this third item that he tells us is that he put 
or that he's given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Right? We're given the spirit as a guarantee. Now, that word guarantee, that, that's a, it's a contractual term. Um, uh, you might even, some of your footnotes might use the term down payment. Uh, this here, this is a loaded statement that Paul's making in this moment. Uh, because, because this down payment, this guarantee, implies a, a, a few different really important items. Let me try to illustrate this to, to help us understand. I want you to imagine for a moment you've got a contractor coming to your home and, and they're going to they're gonna renovate the part of your home you have most wanted to renovate for the longest. So your kitchen, your bathroom, your living room, you get to run with a fantasy for about 30 seconds. Go for it, right? So this contractor shows up and you're like, here's, here's what I want to do and here's what I want to change and here's the updates that I want. And you agree with the contractor and in that moment you give them a down payment. Now, now the down payment is doing multiple things simultaneously, right? First, what it's doing is that the contractor is now obligated to the task. The contractor has to come back and finish the work that they promised to do. And that is simultaneously um, playing where the contractor knows that they get the rest of the funds when they complete the task. That payment in full happens when they're done. Here's the spiritual implications of this. Loved ones, God has given you and I his spirit as a down payment. And so what this means, what this means is that you and I are employed into service of the Lord. God is putting us to work. We've been contracted, so to speak. And yet, at the same time, simultaneously, right, as we work, what we know is this is not the full payment. Right? This is just the initial upfront money. All the good stuff comes when the task is completed. We look forward to that, but here's what this means. It means you and I can labor today in the Lord, knowing that we've been established, that we've been anointed, that we've been sealed because we've been given this down payment. And we can simultaneously await the completion of the task when we receive the fullness of what God has promised to us. Right? That is the hope of the gospel. Right? That's why we persevere today is because we know that redemption and restoration is coming tomorrow. Right? When we believe in Christ, we're given his spirit. And that's great in this moment, but we know so much more is to come. Earlier in the service, Chris read from Romans 8. Romans 8 really is, a, is, is an appropriate echo of what's going on in this. Right? Because in one sense, in Romans 8, Right, we're promised life in the Spirit, that we're, we're, we're adopted into the family of God, that we become heirs with Christ. And yet, in that same chapter, um, we're keenly reminded of the reality that creation groans and things are broken, and we live under the effects uh, and the curse of sin. Right? The fullness is going to come in Jesus. And so, love and give yourself entirely to Christ. You can labor in the fullness of Him because the Spirit dwells within you. And as you labor, know the full payment is coming. We're yielded to gospel priority. We know we're established in Christ, which leads us to this final item here, the tail end of our text, that we have abundant love for others. We have abundant love for others. That's where Paul finishes. 
But he says, I, I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Right? So what he says in verse 23, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. And, and, and then, and then he, he launches into the motivation and the reasoning as to why he did what he did. And in chapter 2, we see there was two motivations for Paul. It was the joy of the people and his love for them that prevented him from going to them. And instead, he writes this painful letter. As you think about having abundant love for others, I want you to consider three things that we see here in chapter 2. First of all, make note of this. Love for others considers others in our planning. Love for others is going to consider others in our planning. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. I wanted to see you, but I knew this would not be best for you. Right? I have concern for you. That, that, that's why I didn't come. That, 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 that's why the plans are altered. But on how often do you make decisions based on concern for others instead of simply your own convenience, or preference. Love for others is going to consider them in our planning. Secondly, look at verse 2 and 3. Love for others derives joy in others. I mean, this is kind of some crazy stuff that Paul says here. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad? Now, let me just stop you right there. Okay, this is church, right? There's, there's typically some like really easy answers in church. So I want you to answer. I'm going to stop. You tell me the answer. Give me the church answer. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad? You would say, oh my gosh, that was pathetic. <laughs> Jesus. There wasn't an ounce of joy in anyone in the room. Let's try that again. It was that pathetic. We got to run it back. For if I cause you pain, who's there to make me glad? Jesus, Jesus right? Like that's the obvious answer. But what does he say? But the one whom I've pained. He doesn't say Jesus, right? He says in verse 3, and I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. Like, well, I thought we're to rejoice in the Lord. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. This, this kind of crazy talk here. Paul finds joy in their well-being. Loved ones, do you find joy in Christ through the well-being of others, through the flourishing of others? the blessing of others, right? Too many of us are robbed of, of, of joy that God intends because we fail to derive joy in others flourishing and well-being. So this is simultaneously an admonition for community, right? That we would live in community so that we would see and derive joy from others as well as having life purposes that extend beyond just ourselves. But lest you think that this is somehow out of left field for Paul, it's not. Let me read to you a very similar passage from 1 Thessalonians 2, where Paul says this. I mean, this is, this is just more explicit. He says, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Now, that's the one where you're definitely like, that has to be Jesus. Like, like how could it not be? He's talking about the return of Jesus. How could you possibly talk about something else? And yet, here's what he says. Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Even in light of the coming of Christ, he has joy in others. That doesn't replace his joy or his delight in Jesus, but it does speak to the fact that he finds joy in others. Let us be people who derive godly joy from the people that God has put in our lives. 
And then finally this, look at verse 4. An abundant love for others is willing to speak hard truths. So he says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and of anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So, so Paul didn't go. But don't, don't miss this, don't miss this. He didn't avoid saying the hard thing that they needed to hear either. Did you catch that? So he didn't show up, but he didn't withhold the hard truth that needed to be spoken. But as you're thinking about that, notice how he felt about it. He was grieved by it. See, we, we've, we've all seen people who will not speak the hard truth. They're, they're just not going to do it. They're not going to be put out that way. They're, they're, they're too, too much fear of man in them. Like, I'm not going to say the hard thing. And then we've all probably been around that kind of odd individual who derives too much joy out of saying the hard thing to other people. You're like, what, what, what's this guy's deal? Right? Like, why are you so excited to tell me why I'm wrong? Right? Like, we've all been there. That, neither of those is what's happening here. Yeah, let me bottom line it. The person who will say the hard things to you and finds no pleasure in saying the hard, hard things to you, that's the person who loves you. Do you hear that? The person who will say the hard thing to you and finds no pleasure in doing it, that's the person that loves you. And so when that person comes to you, receive it. That's a tremendous gift, receive it. And when God calls you to be that person, that you would lovingly and graciously say the hard truth and have no delight in doing so. Our willingness to yield to God's plan enables integrity and a clear conscience. So let us be people who surrender ourselves to God's plan. Let us live in that integrity and reap the benefit of a clear conscience. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you. God, we thank you for the clarity of your word. God, how your word is, is, is straight and clear that you give us what we need when we need it. And so, God, even in light of these truths that you put forward, God, we ask, God, we ask that you would help us to be men and women who live with a clear conscience. God, because we, we, we live in the specific manner and way that you've called us to. Father, we pray that our life would be a testimony, a reflection of your goodness and your grace to us, living in the fullness of all that Christ has done and seeking to honor you with all that we are. Father, we pray all this in your name.